Hi, my name is Rick, and I'm one of the shepherds here at Crosspoint Church. We started a journey a few weeks back of looking at the God story found in the Bible. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. To help us stay focused and encourage participation, I'm using the book The Story. Pastors Max Lucado and Randy Frazee developed the approach, the format, the curriculum, and the artwork. I am grateful for their guidance, material, and leadership. The Bible is the grand narrative that tells the story of God. This story speaks of God's great love for all of mankind and is filled with intrigue and drama, conflict, romance, and redemption. The Word of God will help us see God clearer and will change our perspective of Him. The better we see God, the more we are captivated by Him. There are 31 chapters in this story, and we will cover one chapter a week. Each of the chapters of the story cover a large portion of Scripture. We will address certain parts of those scriptures, but not all of them. Each week's message will include an upper story so we understand God better and a lower story so we understand ourselves better. We are encouraging you to follow along, to read the chapters ahead of time so that you might be able to get more out of each week's message. Before we start into chapter 3, let's do a quick review. God created a perfect environment and had a perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. But this perfectly created couple chose to disobey God and break their relationship with Him. Their relatives often chose to live apart from God and thus endured the pain and the suffering that accompanies such a choice. Yet God continues to offer life in a broken world and hopes each one of us will take his gracious offer of life and return to the relationship that Adam and Eve had in that garden. After the flood, God decided it was best to establish a nation, a special group of like-minded people who intent on knowing God as much as he wanted to know them. God would faithfully reveal himself to them, hoping they would respond to his love and enter into a rich relationship with him. God wanted this nation to experience the very best of life together. So God chose an old, childless couple to miraculously be the parents of this new nation. Abraham and Sarah's faith pleased God. Yet this imperfect couple struggled at times in spite of their faith. The story continues. Isaac married Rebekah, who gives birth to twins Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. God then birthed the nation of Israel from Jacob's offspring. This morning's chapter focuses on the sons, one in particular, his name is Joseph. Let's pray before looking at chapter 3 of the story found in Genesis 37, 39, 41 through 48, and 50. Father, we do come before you this morning so grateful for your word and for the Bible. 
You have preserved for us your words, your words of life, and you are sharing with us what we each need to know. Would this story today, a story that is so familiar with each one of us, would it convict us and encourage us and strengthen us? Would it clarify our perspective and our vision of you? And would it motivate us to listen to you better? Would you grow our faith? We also pray, Father, for all those other churches who are proclaiming your good news this morning. Churches in Lake County, in Illinois, and in the United States, and all over the world, we pray, dear God, that your disciples would be strengthened and that they would continue to make disciples. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. We are introduced to Joseph when he was about 17 years old. Once again, we are puzzled at God's choice when we look at Jacob's family. After all, this was the family that God would use to establish a nation, a special group of like-minded people intent on knowing God as much as God wanted to know them. It seemed like Jacob's family didn't come close to God's lofty goal. This family was right up there on the dysfunctional scale. Twelve sons, four different mothers, Jealousy and disharmony and hatred and poor parenting practices all plague them. Some of you know Joseph's bizarre story or have seen glimpses of it in the Broadway musical. It is well worth our time today to look at it again. Everyone knew that Joseph was his father's favorite. When he eventually received a robe, it was a dead giveaway. Hatred marinated into murder, while at least being sold to slave traders. The brothers, well, they ended up deceiving their father, who was devastated and inconsolable. He didn't understand this when he was presented the robe filled with goat's blood. Well, as the story goes, and many of you know, Joseph ends up in Egypt, and he is sold to Potiphar. And here's where the story gets interesting. The scriptures do not address Joseph's emotional state, but just imagine, back when you were 17, if this happened to you, we do know that Joseph begged for his life. But in spite of that, his heartless brothers sold their brother. Joseph had to felt abandoned by his family. He was thrust into this new status, this new culture, had a new language. I would imagine that he also questioned God. He knew God well, as we will continue to, to highlight his faith in God. But I bet there were some questions during those long, dark nights. In those times that he was being trained as a slave, something so very different than what he grew up with. But he probably had questions like, why did God allow this? And why didn't God stop 
the brother's evil plan. Questions we often ask when we're in tough times, when there are circumstances we don't understand. God did not abandon Joseph. In Genesis chapter 39, verses 2, 3, and 4, the scriptures say this, the Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of the Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. Well, things didn't make sense to Joseph, but He served his God by serving Potiphar. And Potiphar noticed. He had some managerial skills. He was able to get things done. But more than not, he talked about this God and how this God gave him the ability to work and to serve Well, the Lord was with Joseph, and by God's grace, Joseph rises in status and becomes the sarge in charge. Potiphar's house literally prospers. Well, as the story goes, Mrs. Potiphar also noticed more than his leadership. She wasn't so enamored with how well well, he ran the household. The scriptures tell us he was handsome and well-built. I'm pretty sure Mrs. Potiphar probably had her own way most of her life. And so she thought, whoa, I would like to have an intimate relationship with Joseph. She made no bones about it. She wasn't even subtle about her intentions. But you know what? Joseph does the unthinkable. He chooses to align himself with God and then suffers for his wise choice. Joseph was sent to prison for a crime he did not commit. Again, the questions had to begin to rise. God, why did you allow this? Especially, I'm listening to you. I'm obeying you. I'm doing what you ask me to do, and now I'm in prison. But once again, God didn't abandon Joseph. In Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. I'm going to stop there and read that again. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favor with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. We're starting to see a little bit of a pattern here. 
Not liking exactly God's plans, but God was with Joseph. Once again, God joined Joseph in his suffering. God did not spare Joseph from difficulty or injustice. Can you let that sink in just a little bit as we're going to come back to this? There was something really wrong. This wasn't fair. But God did not save Joseph from prison. Wow. While he's down there, he begins to serve others. How odd is that? This gifted, handsome Hebrew is on the rise again, even in a dungeon. He interpreted some dreams of a cupbearer and a baker. Well, for the baker, it didn't turn out so well, but the cupbearer was soon well restored to his job. And the one thing Joseph asked the cupbearer is, when you get back and you see Pharaoh, would you tell him of this injustice? Would you remind him that there's a guy named Joseph in prison and he doesn't belong there? Well, as it goes, the cupbearer forgot completely. And the scriptures tell us after two years. Folks, let's not forget this story. At 17, he's made a slave. He learns a completely new culture. He's serving Potiphar. Things are going well. The household is running immaculately. He gets falsely accused and put in prison again. Whoa. Things go from bad to worse. He, he continually uses the gifts that God has given him and is hoping, well, to get out of this. But day after day, a week turns into a month and a month turns into a year and a year turns into two years. God, what are you thinking? God, why are you doing this? It doesn't seem fair. But after two years, Pharaoh summons Joseph. God uses his God-given prophetic interpretive gift and explains the future. Pharaoh listens. He responds. He notes there's not anyone as wise as Joseph in all of the land. And on the spot, who who ever heard of this? Makes him vice pharaoh. Second in command. Literally hours before he was in a dungeon. In just a few moments, he's number two in command. Joseph could have never imagined this. All of a sudden, instead of a dungeon, dungeon, people are bowing down to him. Yes, he's got responsibilities. But now he lives in the best of quarters, eating the best of foods, having people serve him. The scriptures don't tell all the things that went on in his mind. But I'm pretty sure Joseph was just pinching himself every day. 
couldn't believe what was going on. But now the story gets really, really good. Because what happens, there are years where there's so many crops, and Joseph does really well in being able to store the crops. And then the years of famine hit. And just like any other famine, famine doesn't really bother you too much in the very beginning, but soon people are realizing there are no crops. There are no food. There is no food. And the only place that we can get it, well, is this place called Egypt. So the Egyptians stored tons of food under Joseph's leadership. Eventually, the brothers, Jacob's sons, run out of food. And they traveled to Egypt, and no kidding, they bowed down before the vice pharaoh. They don't know who this is. But isn't that ironic? That they thought this would never, ever, ever happen, and all of a sudden they are bowing down. And they asked Joseph for some food. Now again, after several emotional encounters, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to read the first eight verses. This is an amazing section in Scripture. But try to picture yourself. These brothers are standing before Joseph. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But look at this next sentence. But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Can you picture this? They had never thought they'd see Joseph again. They had bowed down to Joseph. And all of a sudden, this Egyptian official starts talking Hebrew and relates to them that he is Joseph. Then the scriptures say, please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery into Egypt. He just wanted to make sure they remember that. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years and will last five more years, and there will be no plowing nor harvesting. And listen to this sentence. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. 
And he is the one who made me advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and governor of all of Egypt. The brothers were speechless and stunned. That had to be quite the understatement. Maybe they were amazed that it was Joseph. But you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking every one of those brothers were thinking, I'm dead. Oh, I, I know we begged. I know we... Uh, oh, we are talking about a very powerful dude. We are dead. Oh, that isn't how Joseph responded. It's one of the most odd things in all of the scripture. Think about it. If any one of us were in that position, don't you think mm, these probably wouldn't be our words? I've just got to let you know. The slavery thing, the prison thing, all that, you don't forget that. And now you have a chance for payback, for revenge. But instead, he has this line. Does he really even believe this? Does Joseph believe this, that God actually sent me ahead of you? So it was God that sent me here? Joseph, are you loony? I don't think so. I think he believed that God used an unbelievable evil situation and brought it to his glory. Then Joseph does the unthinkable. He sends them home to get Jacob and his family, and they move to Egypt. But not just move to Egypt, their small little family get ushered into the very best of all the land. Whoa, what is going on? Jacob enjoys Joseph for about 17 years, the scripture tells us, before Jacob dies. Oh, it must have been an unbelievable reunion. It must have been fun for Joseph after he has a few hours at the office to take his chariot over to the land of Goshen and, and check in with his dad and even with his brothers. But when Jacob dies, something even more amazing happens. The scriptures tell us that Joseph mourns. He weeps when his dad dies. And the scripture also tells us that the brothers trembled. They trembled. Somehow for these last 17 years, they kept pinching themselves. They were in the best of all the fields. They had all the best of all the livestock. And they were thinking, well, maybe it's just because Jacob's alive. As soon as Jacob dies, we're toast. And so although Joseph is crying and weeping and mourning, 
the brothers are trembling. But the scriptures tell us this, is that the brothers, well, they tell a, a lie. It's so odd because after 17 years, you would have thought that Joseph really was the genuine person. He was kind. He was being gracious. He gave him the best of everything. Why would Joseph treat them any differently? Isn't 17 years enough to prove his faithfulness and his love for his family? But the scriptures tell us that the brothers make up this little story and says, hey, make sure you don't blame us. You you know, um, Jacob just wanted to make sure that Joseph didn't do anything, well, wrong and hurt the brothers. Well, Jacob never said that. The brothers lied. And you know what the scriptures tell us is that Joseph literally weeps. He cries. I think he knew it was a lie. I think he looked around and, and almost said, guys, what else do I have to do? I have cared for you magnificently for 17 years. I've not held this against you. Don't you see that our God is so much bigger? Our God is so much better. And then look at chapter 50 of Genesis. Verses 19, 20, and 21. If you mark your Bibles, please mark this section. It's unbelievable. But Joseph replied after he was crying, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I'm going to punish you? You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So be assured. So he assured them by speaking kindly to him. I'm sure the brothers were absolutely stunned and appalled again. In spite of their behavior to Joseph years before, this guy was so totally convinced that God was walking with him that he turned something that was meant for evil into something that was actually good and profitable. And it not only would benefit his family, but it would benefit the new nation of Israel. You know, so many times you hear and perhaps have even memorized a New Testament verse that probably has this correlation here. And it's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. When Paul writes this, and we know that God causes everything. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Everything. Oh, does that mean God brings evil? Absolutely not. Never. Never. But we live in a broken world. 
We live in a world that, that people are selfish and ornery and self-focused. And sometimes we suffer consequences because of our poor choices. Other times it's because of those who are around us. And sometimes we have no clue. Except that our world is broken. And Paul says this, if you are a God follower, if you are part of God's family, we can be assured that no matter what path we're on, no matter what happens in our life, everything, everything, everything can work for the good. Joseph believed that. He did. Well, Rick, that doesn't mean when I get the diagnosis of cancer. This certainly cannot work for the good. Or when I just get fired. Or when I just got in a car accident. Or when I, and you just keep putting the situations. Rick, are you telling me that my wife, who just filed for divorce, that's going to work out? How do you expect that to work out? Isn't it God's plan for us to stay married forever? And you know what? No matter what the situation or circumstance is, God says this, we know that I am going to work out this situation that even may look like it's evil, may even be evil, but I'm going to work it out. Wow. This is an amazing story. But what's even more amazing about this story is what it introduces. You see, God introduces several major themes in Genesis, and forgiveness takes center stage. This is actually the first time that forgiveness is addressed. So I'd be remiss if I didn't address forgiveness here. Let me remind you, Just like you never drift into becoming a disciple, you will never drift in forgiving others. You know, there's a book called Radical Forgiveness by Brian Zahn. And I just actually finished reading the book yesterday. It was so helpful for me to be able to understand a little bit more of what forgiveness is all about. I also have a young pastor friend whose name is Jeff Kennett, and he began to share a little bit about forgiveness in his recent series on messages. And so I'm pretty grateful at just the right time, God has given me some resources to be able to wrestle through some of this forgiveness stuff. Brian Zahn's definition of forgiveness is this. To forgive is to give mercy instead of judgment. To give kindness instead of retaliation. And to give pardon instead of punishment. You know, every one of us have a bent toward payback, not forgiveness. But by God's grace, Joseph relinquishes payback. He closes the door of a painful past and opens the door to freedom. Actually, a life 
without shackles. Joseph did not go soft on justice. What was wrong? I mean, what happened to him was wrong. It was terribly wrong. He just transfers justice and punishment to God. If you've noticed and read through these scriptures too, Joseph also forgives without forgetting. We've often heard, oh, forgive and forget. Well, I'm not so sure you will forget some of the awful, maybe even heinous things that have been done to you. You see, Christian forgiveness does not call us to forget. It causes us to break the cycle of revenge. The pain of injustice is removed while the scar of memory remains. You see, forgiving others is the morally pure way of relieving the pain of your past. There actually are other ways to relieve the pain But they're short-lived and they actually don't get rid of it. Injustice is to be remembered, not just allowed to poison the present and dictate the future. We don't enable evil or sacrifice justice by leaving revenge to God. The enemy whispers that we can do a better job. Isn't that hilarious, really? Isn't it? That we think that we know how to bring justice or revenge to a situation. No matter how you've been harmed. No matter what's been done to you. We all have these ideas on, whoa, if this could happen or that could happen or, whoa, I would love to see that. The truth is, we probably will never know how to do it best. But God does. Ultimately, Jesus modeled for us what forgiveness looks like and what faith in His Father looks like. Forgiveness to another person who has hurt you is always the kingdom response. It's hard not to think of Jesus on the cross. When one of the things he shouted out was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you remember Jesus' state when he said that? There was nobody more abused on this planet than Jesus at that time. He, well, couldn't even be recognized as a human being. His abuse and his beatings and his scourgings and ultimately spread his arms out and crossed his legs so that nails were put into him. And he hung on a cross. If there was ever a time where you would think about vengeance, retaliation, the very Soldiers that were hammering the nails. What is that? Father, forgive them. Forgive their heinous deeds against me. I'm going to trust you, Dad. You take care of that part. 
I'm going to forgive. What about in Matthew 6 when Jesus, well, teaches us how to pray? In the pattern of prayer, there's a line in there that says something like this Forgive me in the same manner that you see me forgive others. I don't know if many of you pray the Lord's Prayer, the pattern prayer. I don't know if any of you even pray it and really kind of listen to the words. (laughs) But you are asking God to help you forgive others the very same way that God has forgiven you. Not just forgive, well, the little ones or the sort of bad things that have happened. No. Forgive. Forgive. In Matthew 18, you all remember that story, I think, about Peter. Peter was a spokesman, we know that. And, and he actually, you know, uh, kind of blurted things out. And Jesus smiled and hugged him and reprimanded him and redirected him in many, many ways. But Peter thought he was really kind of being special and very spiritual. And he asked Jesus this. He goes, hey, Jesus, um, how many times should we forgive? You know, there's a lot of um, uh, people in this world that harm us. Uh, How many times should we forgive? Should we forgive them seven times? That's even more than what the religious leaders would ask him to do. So Peter thought, whoa, Jesus is going to say, yeah, Pete, that is a good thing. And what is his answer, Peter? Well, no, we, we don't forgive people just seven times. We forgive people seven times 70. You math majors, whoa, seven, I mean 490. Yes, I'm going to start counting because my son is driving me crazy. I think he's at 461. (laughs) That is not what Jesus is saying. He isn't. He's saying, you never stop forgiving. Do you understand how different this is than the way your neighbors think? I want to say this. Forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Please hear this. Reconciliation happens when one party forgives and the other party repents. Reconciliation always precedes relationship. But in the kingdom, those who are Jesus' followers... They follow Jesus. They simply learn from Jesus and learn to live like Jesus. They act like Jesus. They listen to what Jesus says. Jesus extended forgiveness and left revenge and justice up to God. Or in some cases in the scriptures, you'll see the institutions that God has given authority. Say, Rick, I don't know if I can do that. You're right. I don't think any one of us can forgive unless we are so connected with God. Unless we 
are drawing strength from God, unless we're learning from God. But I'm letting you know that Jesus was pretty clear on how we ought to treat others. You know, in the kingdom, there's probably some steps you could take. And what I did, I've got kingdom forgiveness steps, and I've, and I've put three of them there. And, and this may be able to just even help you as you look at some things that, that I think are really hard. First of all, I think that we need to choose to forgive. In other words, forgiveness is a command. It's something that God is asking us to obey. And that we need to choose to forgive. Secondly, sometimes we think, hey, if we forgive, we're going to feel a whole lot better. I'm letting you know, uh, I'm really sure after Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God didn't sprinkle some magic dust. Oh, Jesus, I bet you feel really good right now. There won't be any pain at all. All this abuse that just happened to you, no problem, Jesus. Are you serious? There was horrific pain. And sometimes it's emotional pain and sometimes it's physical pain. But when you forgive others, you will suffer. And then the ultimate You know, sometimes we read some of the things that Jesus said and we just think, oh, that probably just, that'll never happen here. Why Why would I pray for my enemies? He must not have, he just must have meant pray for the people that sort of I don't like. Uh, I don't think that's actually what Jesus said. I want you to pray for your enemies, those people that are your enemies, and bless them. Oh, you know, we've been talking about bells if you've been part of our ministry over these last few weeks. And we're trying to be a little bit more missional as a community. And the bells acronym is bless, eat, listen, learn, and serve. And what one of those, well, the first one is called bless. And I'm telling you that when someone abuses you and hurts you and you forgive them and then you turn around and bless them, you will be shouting that you have a God that is so very, very different than anyone they've ever met. You know, there's an upper story here. And I, and I just need to remind you as we bring this to a close but God's promises are good. He not only saved a nation, but he told Joseph, I will be with you. I will be with you in the midst of the pain. I know that so many of us pray for God's healing and pray that God protects us and pray that we never have any hard times. I, I know, I pray for it myself. But I think what's more important to pray for is God, help me see you in the midst of my pain. 
I know you, I know you have not left me. But I want to understand who you are and realize the power that you give me. God walks with his kids on the journey. He does not leave them. I think one of the enemy's greatest strategies is to say, you know what, God doesn't care about you. That is a huge lie. And lastly, God's plans prevail. They are. They will happen. And in some ways, as you look at your situation or your circumstance, you may feel bitter. You may feel angry. You may not like it. But God is going to work his plans in spite of the circumstances or situations you are in, whether you've caused it or other people. Lastly, the lower story. This is so exciting to me, is that a clear view of God changes everything. I look at Joseph. I see the circumstances that he had. And Joseph trusted God, not circumstances. There were never quick fixes. I'm sure there were tons of tears. But who, other than a person that saw God so clearly, could say, hey, God used what you meant for evil, and he turned it around. In fact, what could happen as a result of that is that Joseph could forgive others, even bless those who hurt him, and leave revenge and justice to his good, good father. What Joseph did is unthinkable. How motivating. How exciting. You know, as we look at Romans 8, 28. And we walk with our God. There is nothing that's going to happen in our lives that God will not have victory. Everything in your life, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, the good, the bad, the raises, the rejections are all working together to accomplish good. Be patient. Trust God. He will refine and equip you for the assignments ahead. You may not all be Pharaoh's right-hand man. I get it. But God will use you in an amazing way. I've just got to say this. There are discussion questions and texts for next week at the bottom of your bulletin. But I just have to ask you this. How can you not talk about this? Even if you have a six-year-old or seven-year-old, when the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, it's not fair. It's not fair. Do you think one of the most beautiful things in all of life is that God is giving you a privilege of raising children so that you can help them respond to circumstances that aren't fair. It doesn't mean you preach at them. You get them down on the ground and you cram Romans 8.28 down their throats. But I think that's a real question. You know, Johnny got to go out first It wasn't fair. The teacher didn't see my hand up. 
So I got to go out to recess last, Dad. And we go, oh, shut up and grow up. Or, you know what? That is unfair. It is. I I bet that made you feel lousy. Now, I'm not saying you turn into Dr. Phil here, okay? But you know what I'm asking you to do is let's talk about it. Let's remind each other over and over and over, our God is with you. Even when you're disappointed, even when you're discouraged, even when you go out last to recess. I know this is hard. But I'm letting you know, as you get older, there's going to be a lot worse things than going out last from recess. Okay? But to a six-year-old, that is the worst. Wow. So as we move forward, oh, I hope your God mesmerizes you. I hope you're so grateful that he loves you. I hope everyone right here in this auditorium knows him, is part of God's family, have come to a place in their life where they recognize that they, well, are sinful and their relationship is broken. But maybe today you might receive God's gracious gift of life that you might be able to not only will start living above circumstances and trusting your God, but recognizing that Jesus loved you and loved me, died in your place so that we might have a relationship and that in spite of our broken world, we can live abundant lives trusting God. Whoa, if that doesn't give you wings, nothing does. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Joseph. I thank you, dear God, that in spite of all the things that happened, that young man trusted you. He saw you differently. In spite of the injustices, in spite of even obeying you and ending up in prison, not just for a day, not just for a week, but two years in a dungeon. Oh God, you're Faithfulness to us is unbelievable. We hate the prisons. We hate the slavery. We hate the circumstances that sometimes we find ourselves in. But we love that you're our God. We love that that you are bigger than anyone that tries to do evil or harm. God, there are things I'm sure we're not going to get until we see you face to face. But Lord, give us faith now. Give us courage now. Thank you, God, for loving us and gracing us and walking with us. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.